it's always fun for me to turn around for the reading of the gospel because when we start service, there's about 10 of us together. And <laughs> let me tell you what, worship is just real disheartening when you're like, nobody is here. I'm standing here by myself. And then you turn around and I'm like, oh, there's people here today. This is great. So thank you for showing up. A bizarre story from Jesus today, and I do plan to get to it, but first I want to direct our attention to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This is our New Testament reading for today. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This line, all of us possess knowledge, was like a slogan of some of the members of the Corinthian church. So some backstory, what we know is that Paul has started this church in Corinth, and then he leaves, and then the church sends people to Paul with a letter, asking him some questions. And the people who write this letter say, hey, we've got some questions, some things are going on, we'd like you to speak to these things. So he writes a letter back that we now have as 1 Corinthians. And it begins with Paul saying, I heard this from the guys that you had bring me this letter. I know that some of you are divided. Some of you are following Peter, others are following me. Some of you are following Jesus because you're just so spiritual that you follow no man. And then he gets to their questions. And one of their questions is this. Paul here is addressing this issue of whether or not Christians should be eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Might seem like kind of a silly argument to us today, but for them, most of the meat that they had access to would have been meat that was brought to them from the temple, offered as a sacrifice to an idol, consumed, and then the leftovers are brought to the market, which there would have been a lot of leftovers, and then they'd be put out there to be sold and to be consumed. So you have some people who are saying, hey, we should absolutely not do that thing. We should not be consuming that meat that's been sacrificed to those idols. And then there are others who are saying, hey, listen, we know that those pagan gods aren't real. There's nothing to worry about here. All of us possess knowledge. We know that what those folks are doing doesn't really matter. So why should we go without meat just because it's been sacrificed to some made up idol, right? Of course, there are other dynamics at play here. To be invited to the temple was often a sign of social status or social privilege. And so the folks who are pushing back and saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this, at the heart of their argument isn't just, hey, this has been sacrificed to idols, but it's this sense that when Christians come together, when they come to the table, everyone should be welcome. No one should be excluded or inhibited in some way from coming together. This isn't an exclusionary community, right? So you being able to afford the food that's being offered shouldn't matter. If you're anything like me, you might've had this kind of experience of being invited to a meal that you cannot afford to pay for. Uh, I had an awkward experience just a couple weeks ago. My wife was like, hey, date night. I said, great. And she invited her parents. So here's the dynamic, right? We've invited them. They've picked the restaurant. And um, man, it was a good meal. And the waiter or waitress, you know, there's that wonderful moment where they're like, so how are we doing the bill tonight? <laughs> and we just kind of like, oh no, oh no. It was fun. 
Jimmy's Chop House, have you been to this place yet? Holy cow, it's tasty. But we can't afford it. <laughs> so the impulse of some of the Corinthian Christians didn't want that thing, right? They didn't want that moment creeping up in their communities, but not everyone had that sensitivity. But what I want us to, to focus on and to hear today is the wisdom in Paul's response to this conflict. Now concerning food sacrifice to idols, we know all of us possess knowledge, quoting them back to themselves. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now it seems like Paul is making a distinction here between like, like heart people and head people right? That if you're a knowledge person, you're arrogant. But if you're a love person, if you're a feeling person, you build up. But this, this isn't a kind of Pauline distinction between knowing and feeling. That's not what he's doing here. What he means is there are things we think we know about God and ourselves and the world. And we can live in the world confident that we know what we need to know. And that leads to arrogance. Or we can live in the world knowing that there are more important things than what we know or what we think we know. And we can live with that kind of humility and that humility leads to life and to building up. I don't know if you're familiar with this, uh, this, this theory. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Are you aware of this thing? It's one of my favorite things to talk about because I feel like I experience it all the time. I think I sent a picture of like the chart can you throw that up real quick? This is the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it basically says that when you gain just a little bit of wisdom about something, the amount of confidence you experience skyrockets. I didn't come up with this, with this but I wish I would have. Peak of Mount Stupid. <laughs> just a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of understanding, a little bit of knowledge takes you straight to the peak of Mount Stupid. But the thing is, once you've learned a little bit more, once you've gone, you know, past being like a hobbyist to like a student, what you realize is that you don't know anything about anything, right? There is a plummet in your confidence. And it's only if you stick with the thing. It's only if you give yourself as like a student or being tutored or you have a mentor who's going to journey along with you through this process that you can slowly build up your confidence. And notice, uh, this one's a little different, but in most of the charts that I've seen on this, your level of confidence never gets as high as the peak of Mount Stupid. You're always just a little bit suspicious that there's more going on here than what I'm aware of. So what Paul is talking about is two kind of orientations. Do you think you already know what you need to know? Then you will be a person who is puffed up, arrogant, destructive. Do you think you have much to learn? Then you'll be humble, you'll be open, and God can work with that. So that's the distinction. And then Paul says this, anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. So if you're living in this confidence that you understand, you don't really understand because real understanding comes when the recognition of I don't really understand. <laughs> and you can sense the irony here, right? The tension that if you think you know, you don't know. But if you think you don't know, that's the beginning of learning to know what you need to know. 
And then he turns his whole thing around and he says this, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Anyone who loves God is known by him. So he shifts from talking about what they know to talking about who knows them. That's what's crucial. It's not what you know at all, but what is known about you. C.S. Lewis said that the most important thing about us is that when we are in the presence of God, it isn't that we recognize that presence, but that that presence recognizes us. That presence recognizes us. What Paul is saying is that what's important about you is not what you know or who you know. What matters is what is known about you, what is true about you, about, and, and who keeps the faith at work in you. Who keeps that truth about who you are? Who maintains that truth? Paul makes a similar statement in Galatians. He says to them, you know God, or better, you are known by God. You can almost hear him correcting himself, that you are known by God. No, 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 wait, something better. You are known by God. There's a way of reading this that says, anyone who loves God comes to be known by God. But that's just another kind of misstep in this journey. This, this thing that Paul is trying to correct with the Corinthians. The point Paul's trying to make is that God knows you before your loving of God, before your knowing of God, God knows you. So if you are anything like me, there are times in your life when it feels as if your love for God waxes and wanes. There are times when it seems as though God's closeness to you fades and your spirituality begins to feel stale. And just know that it is God's knowing you, God's knowing of you that will eventually begin to draw you back into that intimacy with God. That's going to eventually rekindle those embers in your heart. It's not yours to do. It's God's knowing of you, working in you drawing out those things that are most true about you. There are a couple of stories that I think drive all of this home, but the one I wanna focus on today is this story of, of the prodigal son. Now, just a note about how we read these kinds of stories. Part of the reason that this story in particular has been a central part of the Christian community from the very beginning is that we recognize something in these characters that we are drawn to. Something about them reminds us of us. And that's fine. That's just good storytelling. But what we should also remember is that these are not only characters, but caricatures. And one of the risks, I think, of reading this story is that we're quick to identify with one of the characters. And so we, we type ourselves as a kind of person who's revealed here. Like you remember the dynamic between, between David and Saul. And at different times, David was trying to soothe Saul with a song while Saul was trying to throw spears and murder David. For us, we, we can't just all say that, oh, we're David's all the time. As Bishop Chris has said, at different times in our lives, we are all David to somebody else's Saul, and we are also Saul to someone else's David. We have to recognize that these people are all reflections of all different parts of our lives. 
And the same is true of this story. At times, you are the elder son. At times, you might be the prodigal son. Maybe at times you feel like, well, I mean, now on the other side of the holidays, maybe you feel like the fatted calf. (laughs) Maybe you feel like that servant being told to go fetch the ring in the robe. We're all at different places at different times, depending on what's going on in us. One more caution that Bishop Chris brought to my attention to when it comes to this parable of the prodigal son, that this is primarily a a parable about decision, a parable about choices. But if we're not careful, we think that all of life comes down to what we choose. So much of our lives, I think you know this, comes down to the things that are out of our control to choices that we didn't make. And there are some stories in the Bible that are meant to draw our attention to our agency, to the choices we make, to the control that we do have over situations, to the things that we can control, the things that are ours to do. And we need those stories. But the reality is your life is rarely ever just the result of your choices. There are powers working against you. There are choices that you make, and then there is God's will working for us. There's just so much going on in our lives that we did not choose. So we can find ourselves in the far country, like the prodigal, not because of choices we've made, but because of what has happened to us. And what we ought to feel isn't a sense of shame that that's where we've ended up, but we should always recognize that God has given us agency and the choices to make our way home. You may not have put yourself there, but you can always go home. Disclaimers aside, let's get into the story. If you're looking at your watch, yes, that was all introduction. Everything's going to be okay. This story works in much the same way that Paul's argument to the Corinthians does when he's writing to them, that the arc of your growing up in Christ is about knowing, loving, and being known. And this story is about self-understanding, decision, and revelation. Let's look at it. This is Luke 15, beginning in 11. He says, Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, and just keep that word in your mind. Notice how many times he says the word father in this story. Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. What he's asking for, of course, is his inheritance. What should be his after his father dies, he wants it now. He doesn't know exactly why he wants it, And we'll see that in just a second. But he doesn't want to wait for the future to come to the present. He wants it now, in the moment. Notice what the father does. So he divided his property between them. Between them. Notice this as well, that everything the father does in this story is for both sons. One son asks for his inheritance. And it doesn't say he gave it to him. He says he divides it and gives it to them. So he does everything that he does with both of his sons in mind. He's fathering both sons at every moment. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. A few days later. It's strange to me, and I don't know exactly what to make of it, that he stays for a few days. 
He might have just been planning and making arrangements, but I also think he must have been pretty conflicted that after this tense moment of requesting his inheritance, there is some itch that he can't really scratch until he leaves. So it's like he's, he's standing there at the edge of the pool, contemplating whether or not to leap in, getting away from his brother, getting away from his dad, getting away from the farm, leaping into the life that he thinks he wants to live. And after a few days, he leaves everything. He goes out into the distant country, which of course for them would have been a Gentile land. And notice that all the text tells us is that he squandered his property, apparently living wildly or irresponsibly, but it never tells us what kind of wild living he does. It goes on, when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. The language here is a little opaque because it's more than just hiring himself out as an employee. The connection here is deeper than just employer-employee relationship. He hasn't just found an employer. He was looking to join himself to someone, for someone to replace that role that his father had in his life. And this is what happens whenever we make foolish choices. We end up trying to find people to replace those people that we cut out of our lives by foolish choices. So he joins himself to a, a kind of father surrogate, right? The kind of guy that might wear a shirt that's like, I'm not the dad who stepped up or stepped in. How does this go? I'm not the dad who stepped in. I'm the dad who stepped up. Is that what that t-shirt says? So he joins himself to this guy. And this guy has this Jewish boy and he sends him out to do what? Feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled himself, the text says, with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. And so there in that far country, desperate, hungry, alone, he comes to himself and he makes a realization that I have made bad choices. This is certainly a, a, a turning point in this story, but I don't think that it's the turn most of us assume that it is. Oftentimes we've heard this story as the life of sinners who journey out into the far country, but then they repent, they come to themselves and they turn to the father. But that's not actually how this story is working. He is in the far country, he is starving, he is desperate, but he just realizes I've made a mess of things. He's acknowledging the fact that his life is a shipwreck of his own making. And it's one thing to realize that. It's another thing to have a revelation that I am a son, that I am loved by my father. He hasn't come to that place yet. Look what he says. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. Notice 
nothing has changed for him. He is still only seeing his father as utility, seeing his father as useful to him, someone who can give him what he wants. In the same way that he said, give me my inheritance, now he's thinking I can go back and I can still get from him what I want. While he was living at home, this is how he saw his father, a man who could help him get what he wanted. But he gets it at what expense? The expense of being cut off from his past, the expense of being cut off from his future. He is wasting his inheritance, this thing that's, that's designed to secure a kind of future for him. He's not thinking of his own children. He's not thinking of his own future. This is why at, at his moment of need and desperation, he looks for someone else like his father who can give him what he wants. And now he's seeing his father in the same way all over again. Of course, there's a time when it's appropriate for us or for our kids to see parents in this way, or for us as children to, to see our parents like this, right? That all of us see our parents as useful. I'm hungry, I'm cold, I'm sick, I'm thirsty. But when we remain in that way of seeing them, even when we come into early adulthood, that's when we start to abuse that care and that usefulness. That's what happened to the prodigal. He's returning to this usefulness of the father. And how many people, how many of us have this kind of relationship with God? That we have turned to God, we've drawn close to God, not because we've had a revelation of the father's heart, but because we know there's a need that only God can supply. But that's still a childish understanding, an immature usefulness of God that hasn't grown up yet. So he says, I'm going to go to my father's house and I'm going to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. One of the powerful things about this parable is that it understands our habits of self-talk. That in those moments when we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, when we've made bad choices and cut ourselves off and made a mess of things, what we say to ourselves about ourselves reveals what we really believe. The prodigal doesn't return to his father's house from the awareness that he is his father's son and that his father loves him. He returns in order to be a servant because that's how he sees himself in the dynamic of this relationship. He's returning not to a father, but to a master, not as a son, but as a servant. So he set off and he went to his father, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Again, we often tell this story as if this is the moment of revelation, but it's not. Ah, finally, the father sees the son and rushes to him and embraces him, dances over him. Now he has received the father's love, but that's not what's happened yet. Here, he's shuffling along the road. He's emaciated. He's covered in dirt. His hair is a mess. His ribs are showing. He had to have looked awful because the text says that his father had compassion. That word compassion literally means his guts turned when he saw him. 
The father sees him and runs to him and grabs him. And even while his father is embracing him, even in the throes of that moment, the prodigal is still trying to get the speech out. He's still trying to say what he thinks he needs to say in order to work his way back into his father's good graces. And how many of us have been there in the father's embrace, being delighted over, rejoiced over, and our first thought is, let me get my speech out. Let me say, I'm not worthy, I'm not your son, I will be your servant. Because the truth is, and what I want us to hear today, is that it's not enough for God to love us. We have to come to a revelation that God loves us. That awareness has to settle into our bones that we are loved by God, that we are known by God. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And I love this. He says, but the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, probably his, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. What I love about this is even as he's embracing the son, he's recognizing that his son doesn't believe him. So he doesn't even acknowledge him. Instead, he turns to the servants so he can say to them what his son needs to hear. Parents, let your kids overhear you talking good about them. We'll do this from time to time. My wife and I will be standing in the kitchen and our son will be in the other room. And I'll say just a little extra loud, don't you just love Rowan? Isn't he just such a good boy? He is the sweetest boy I've ever met. Isn't he so thoughtful? Isn't he so kind? That way that he, he filled up his sister's water bottle for her today. Gosh, I just love that kid so much. Those things we say when we know our kids can overhear us will settle into their little bodies more than the things that you tell them directly. The prodigal shows up as a slave and the father just keeps doubling down. This son of mine is home. This son of mine has returned. He was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he is found. And look at this, even though throughout his whole story, the prodigal keeps calling his father, father, he never knows him as father. But when the father calls him his son, he knows him as a son. Remember Paul's words. What you think you know, you don't really know. How you're known is what matters. So the prodigal is taken into a party. And if you've ever been in a position where you carried that kind of shame, that kind of embarrassment, that deep sense of unworthiness, you know it takes a while before you know how to embody joy. I'm not so sure the prodigal wants to be at this party right now, being celebrated, being honored in the way that he is right now, wearing the best robe with a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. But somewhere along the line, he starts to realize he is a son. He's not a servant dressed as a son. He is his father's son. And so much of our life with God is like that. We hear 
the word of God spoken over us, but we wonder, is it true? Am I who God really says that I am? And that's normal. We all have those moments. But I think for all of us, those questions, those suspicions, they arise from that place where I wonder if God is really as good as he says he is. When we doubt that goodness, that we are that loved, we start to wonder, am I really a son or just a servant? So the prodigal has returned. He's in the party. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came, he approached the house. He heard music and dancing. And notice what he does. He called one of the slaves over and asked what was going on. I want you to think of it like this. The prodigal son was all present moment with no past and no future. The elder son was all past and all future with no present moment. The prodigal was going to live with both feet in. He is burning the candle at both ends. The elder son wasn't going to live at all because he feared getting it wrong. The prodigal isn't worried about getting it wrong. He doesn't care whether he's right or wrong. The elder son is afraid to do anything because it might go wrong. What if he loses his connection to the past? What if he destroys his future? And either way, it's unfaithful. The truth is all of us are at different parts of our life making one or the other of those mistakes. And so the servant responds to him. He said, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. I think part of the reason that the father comes out to him is that he realizes the elder son is at much greater risk than the younger son ever was. Being in the field is far more dangerous than being in the far country. It's when you are near to the father's house without knowing the father's heart that you are most at risk. Because it's so easy to confuse being near to the father's house with knowing the father's heart. And that's what happened to the elder son. He is close to the father in one way, but much further than his younger brother in other ways. What the father wants for those boys is for them to become fathers themselves, to learn what it is to be a father. He gives them their inheritance because he wants them to hold it and to live with it wisely. But the younger son at least knows that the father wants me to have these gifts. The older son doesn't even know that about his father. He doesn't see that inheritance as gift. He sees it as an investment. And so we do the same thing with God. We think that God gives us something to use in a certain way for his satisfaction, but that's not who God is. God is not an investor in your life. God is a father. God gives you gifts because he wants you to enjoy the gift. But still there are times when God gives us good gifts and we think of it as investment and not as gift. So the father comes out and the elder son yells at him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. Now we see what he really thinks about himself. He sees his father the same way the younger brother did, as utility, as function, as a master-slave relationship. 
I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Remember, we're never told how he wastes his money. We're never told how he wastes his inheritance. But he says this, either because this is the gossip on the farm, this is just what everybody's buzzing around telling one another, or to wound his father. Not only did your son go to Gentile lands, he slept with Gentile women. Or it's because that's what he would have done if he'd had the guts to do it. Whatever it may be, he's suggesting this is how your son wasted the money. Your son and this is another danger of living close to the father's house without knowing the father's heart. It will make you suspicious of your brothers and sisters. You won't know your brothers and your sisters so long as you are far from the father's heart. I'm almost done. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, notice he turns it back on him now. This brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. He's saying, son, listen, my other boy, your brother, he lived in the moment and he thought he lost his past and his future. But what he's discovered today is that he has a past and he has a future, not because he's deserved it, but because I love him. And God says that over all of us, you have a past and you have a future, no matter how you're living right now, because God loves you and he creates your past and your future. Your life is secure in God. And to the older son, he says, you won't live in the present moment because you're too caught up in the past and in the future. I'm inviting you into the present. Stop worrying about the past that you have to live up to and the future that you can make for yourself. Come into the party. You are my son and that is your brother. Herbert McCabe said that the root of all sin, it isn't pride, it's not rebellion. He says that people don't resist God because they're selfish and angry and rebellious. He says the root of all sin is fear. Fear that we are nothing. The compulsion, therefore, to make something of ourselves. We can do that by trying to go off into the far country, or we can do that by staying at home and working. But if what is behind either of those choices is fear, we will only see ourselves as servants instead of sons. Many of us have learned this lesson, but it's a lesson that we have to learn again and again and again, that that fear and that anxiety is a lie. How much of what we do is trying to reach out and do something admirable because we don't really know that we're loved. A man with an unclean spirit walks into the temple and asks Jesus, what have you to do with us? One man, what have you to do with us? There's a dividedness in his heart. Oftentimes our sense of individuality makes it hard for us to hear the gospel stories well, especially the ones about demons speaking. But Jesus can hear the difference. 
between the voices that are in us telling us one kind of thing about ourselves because of what the evil one has done to us and to our voice. So even though the man says it, he's not really the one speaking. Be silent, Jesus says, and come out of him. And when Jesus says be silent, he is silencing everything that is false in that man. He quiets the falseness so he can draw out the truth of who he is. And what Jesus does for this man is the same thing the father does for both sons. You are my son. You are my daughter. That's all we need to know. That there is a father who loves you, who invites you to gather at this table with your brothers and your sisters. And your past and the present moment and the future will be kept because you are loved. Amen.